Guys, we've got a great talk with Jacob Thompson at the end of this podcast. The end of 2020, he didn't have a sponsor, yet he packed up his bags and moved to Flagstaff, Arizona. Hey, the birthplace of Let'sRun.com. And now he's a USATF national champion in the half marathon. Great talk with him. But if you love this content, you'll love the Supporters Club. You get a second podcast every week. And if you join for a year, you get a free t-shirt. The long sleeve t-shirts were 35 bucks and you get free shipping. And if you use code CLUB25, you'll save 25% off your first year. Check it all out. Let'srun.com slash subscribe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. NCAA Conference Weekend is in the books, and we saw some incredible performances and some incredibly bizarre performances. NCAA Indoors is 10 days away. We have some big questions to answer. Which events will Caitlin Tui run? Washington could have seven guys qualified in the mile. If you're Andy Powell, what events would you rent to them in at NCAAs? And where is Parker Valby? DNS in two events at the SEC Championships over the weekend. Plus, Alephine Kuliamuk and Jacob Thompson are your US half marathon champions. And Molly Seidel runs 7308 for eighth place. We'll be joined by Jacob for our Where Your Dreams Become Reality segment later in the show. So stay tuned for that. Plus, we had some kind of fast miles in Boston on Sunday. We spoke to Cooper Tier at that event and that laid claim to the debate. Is Cooper Tier a 1500 guy or a 5000 meter guy? We will hash that issue out later in the show as well. This is Jonathan Galt. I am joined by my co-hosts Robert and Weldon Johnson. A dreary morning here in Boston. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Dreary, John. Coming to you from Connecticut, the second greatest state in the country. First snow of the year, John. First snow of the year. I just got back from the hill with my daughter. I mean, as a parent, you have to be there, right? The, take them sledding every year, you're failing. So put on the snow pants, headed out. We had not had a legit snow all year, so glad to have it. But now I'm done with winter. Kudos to you, Weldon. That's seizing the day right there. That's being a good parent. You get a check mark for the day. Since this is an NCAA show, this is former men's Cornell distance coach Robert Johnson, also former voice of the Ivy League, Robert Johnson, chiming in. And if you're a coach, college coach now, and you're not coaching one of the top 10 teams in NCAAs or if you're an aspiring college coach and you're not quite there, don't feel bad. I will be exposing most, if not all, of the college coaches in the country as frauds on today's show. But first, I'd like to start with a little trivia. John in the past has put me on the spot with questions and whatnot. And John, I'll start with trivia for you. Are you ready? Yeah, I love trivia. Bring it on. How many men in U.S. distance running history have broken 208 in the marathon. 
Well, we've got Ryan Hall as one, Cal Canucci as two, Dathan Ritzenhain as three, Galen Rupp as four, and I don't think I'm missing anyone, so I'm going to say four. Do you want to reconsider that, John? Oh, all right, all right. Hold on, hold on. October 20th, 2019. Leonard Correa, five. What time did he run? 207. It was very close to, it was somewhere in the 56 to 59 range. I'm going to say 207, 56. Wow. You are correct. That makes up for you initially saying four, because I knew it was in the back of your, I knew it was back in your, the back of your head, John. Thank you for trusting me, Robert. A more vicious host would have just said, no, you're wrong. Whereas you had faith that I had this in me somewhere. So I appreciate that. You're making, you're allowing me to be the best that I can be. With you, I get to practice my ex-coaching skills and my parenting skills. Like I had faith in, in my little son. You're like my elder son, John. Clayton is my youngest. But I bring that up because something we didn't get to include in the week that was yesterday. We had a great week that was. John and I did on the NCAAs. You haven't checked it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. If you're not coming to Let's Run on a daily basis, you should be. We've got great journalism up, the new and improved message boards. You can now edit post. We've got a kick-ass moderation system. You can filter out non-running posts if you don't want to read politics. A lot of people don't realize that. There's a button. Just click on it. Running only. You're good to go. So you don't have to get aggrieved. But the Osaka Marathon was this weekend. Do you know how many Japanese men broke 208 in this race, John? It was more than five. I think it was... Tell me, Robert. Was it eight, nine, ten? If I counted right, I was counting in race results weekly. I got up to ten. So congrats to the Japanese yet again for proving that they're better at the marathon. At least in numbers than the U.S., Yuka Kawayuchi, the I guess I was going to describe him as like the guy that runs a million marathons a year, but he is the former Boston Marathon champion now, so got extremely lucky and won Boston one year. He almost PR'd. He ran 207. I think his PR is 207.27. But I was trying to, when I was looking up to see who it was a PB, and I, I was looking at the Tales Jobs, so maybe they're off by one. But it appears that he ran his PB in 2021 in a 100th career marathon of his life. Like, isn't it, is he bored by now? Like, what motivates you to go run five or six marathons every year, year after year after year? Or is it just like, what motivates you to go into work every day, year after year? After year? That's just what you do? Like, it is interesting, right? Well, then when you have a child, you realize we don't just sit back and do nothing. People like to do things nonstop. And it's very obvious with a baby. So maybe that's just what he's programmed to do. Like a bird goes and looks for the worms. Yuki Kawaichi goes and looks for a sub-210 marathon. Well, I think if you're the kind of guy who likes to run five or six marathons a year very fast, you're also the kind that would still find it enjoyable at Marathon 100 and PRing in them. But... Yeah, Robert, I saw the results of this race briefly. I didn't really dwell on them, but Dan Lilo, the agent, had a tweet a few days ago saying 20th place was 208.11. A dozen 
of the top 20 were Japanese. And he said only five Americans, three American-born have run that fast. And then he was sort of, then he points out, meanwhile, only one Japanese man has ever broken 1310 for 5,000. More than two dozen Americans have. There isn't a huge correlation between 5,000 and the marathon, but it's not zero. So why the disparity? Is it training, competitive opportunities, priorities, economic incentives? And then Brett Lana originally had a discussion in there, but I guess he must have deleted his tweets because it's gone now. But he was sort of saying, well, Japanese athletes are more focused on decadence when they're in college, which are longer distance events. And then they move into the corporate system and it's just more marathon. I mean, we've had this discussion before, but it's a more marathon focused culture. Whereas in the United States, yes, people are focused on marathons, but there are just more opportunities for 5K, 10K athletes. You run the 5K, 10K in college. And if you're an elite 5K, 10K athlete, there are more opportunities for you to continue racing that event for a few years post college. And so that's what Americans do. I'm not saying they would have had the exact success that Japanese athletes have in the marathon, but yeah, if they all just went directly the half marathon and the marathon, all of America's best distance runners coming out of college, I think the number would be more than five sub 208s at this point. These results are crazy. I will point out, though, that the first five finishers were not Japanese. In Ethiopia, Uganda, and the Tanzania, and Kenyan, and a South African sweeping the first five spots. First Japanese, sixth place, 206.45. But then you're not that far back. Yugo Kashiwa, 20th place, 208.11. I guess he's on a corporate team, so he's making a living doing this, but he's the, I think he's the 12th Japanese in this race. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I think, John, it, it, it's it's that's your livelihood in, in Japan. The teams are focused on the Ekaden. The teams, I'm sure, encourage people to go run the marathon. They don't encourage people to go run the 5K. And I, I don't know. I think the culture goes a long way. Our Japanese, like, physiologically better suited for the marathon than the 5K? Probably. Well, I guess Robert almost fell out of his chair. But I think that's actually secondary. Yeah, it also helps. Boston and New York are the two marathons that Americans run most regularly. I guess we do have Chicago, which is a flat, fast course. But Boston and New York are the two most prestigious American marathons. And they're not flat courses geared to run fast, whereas most of the Japanese races are fairly flat, fast courses. Chicago's pretty flat, John. I, that's, I mentioned Chicago. Also, shout out in this race, Stephen Makoka of South Africa, fifth place, 206.42 personal best. That, that was his 20th career marathon. He's 38 years old and he's still running a personal best. So, I mean, obviously caveats with the super shoes, but keep grinding and running a PR in marathon number 20. It's not marathon 100, but it's still pretty deep into his career. So congrats on that. We need to have Brett Larner on the podcast because a, a popular thread this week on Let's Run was love it. 2-8 marathoner says that he doesn't qualify for marathon grand championships in Tokyo. He's retiring. Why don't Americans do that? And a marathon grand championships is their Olympic trials. But just because you've run 208 doesn't mean you're in the thing. 
I mean, Japan, I think, is cool with having a trials race. It's better for TV. It's better for the fans. But they don't want someone like, like, I don't know. But with their depth, you're not going to have some fraud win the damn thing, John. So what are they worried about? Let the 208 guy in. Like, I mean, maybe they want to build up some excitement for qualifying. But yeah, it seems pretty absurd in America where like you get a 208 guy like, oh my God, this is amazing. You start freaking out. Japan 208 might not be enough to even make your Olympic trials. It does seem a little... I mean, we've had that debate. How big should the US Olympic trials be? But Japan, I guess they want some... They want serious prestige attached to qualifying for the Marathon Grand Championships. For the record, I'm glad that Weldon liked that thread. Oh, he's left, John. He doesn't hear what I'm saying now. Should I confess to have having started that thread under a fake name? I can hear some people. Robert, I, you don't need to confess this because I didn't even open the thread. I just saw the title and I was like, well, this is clearly a Robert Johnson thread. I mean, I guess you can make it official, but... I could have told you that, and I didn't even read the thread. I just read the title. Should I be confessing to starting threads under pseudonyme? I, I would put it on my own name. I think people, just, just, I'm just too much of a lightning rod if I'm starting threads. A lot of times when I'm doing the website, the homepage, looking for links, if I find an article, like the actual news isn't, sometimes in a race or something, this, or profile, whatever, there's some nugget in there that's more interesting than actually what the article is about. I mean, this, this actually, in this case, it was about he said he would qualify. But for the record, he hasn't run 208 during this window. So that's his PB is 2845. Okay. But I'm clearly in the camp that it's largely genetic. I mean, well, it's probably both cultural and genetic. Like their best guys run the marathons in their primes, but their wages, they're also genetically far better suited for the marathon than these other events. Well, then Robert just confessed to starting a thread under a fake name, so. The Grand Championship thread? Yes. Damn it. Which I already suspected, but I didn't know if you did. The more I think about it, definitely a Rojo thread. But I, he's been much more discreet recently. I, I used to, like, once a week, like, oh, God, Robert, why'd you start this thread? And I would, I can see an IP address or something. It'd be him. Nine out of ten times. I haven't thought it in a while, so he's probably using chat GPT to change his headlines. All right, shall we move to conference weekend then? We didn't even tease the Birmingham meet in the intro, which was the World Indoor Tour final. It's not really like the Diamond League final where it crowns a champion. It's just sort of the final meet of the series. There were some pretty fast times there. Gudolf Sagai almost broke the world record in the 3K. Neil Gawley broke the British record in the 1500 meters or is there a different direction you'd like to go in Robert John I think we do discuss Birmingham a bit just maybe get it out of the way this was a fabulous track meet but also I think it shows how regional track focus can be because on the Friday 15 also our supporters club only podcast we have a second podcast every week on that podcast we broke down Cam Myers, the 16-year-old, running 355. We discussed whether Centro was done. We talked about Yuri Nagusa's huge win in Madrid and whether he's the number one miler in the world. We talked about Caitlin Tui's DMR. Got to be a Supporters Club member to listen to it. And then we previewed the super fast miles at BU this past weekend. We didn't really talk about Birmingham at all. And it's essentially, if it was a Diamond League final, we would have raved about it. But 
It's a little bit different indoors. And this meet was focused on British athletes. And had some amazing performances. Neil Gorley gets the British record, as you said, John. Dean Asher Smith got a record at 60 meters. There was like world record attempts also in, in the 800. Keely Hodgson was going after the world record, ended up with a British record. I mean, if this, if this essentially was like maybe Milrose for the US, but better, arguably, or about the same. And a huge stadium, over, I think, 10,000 people. And we didn't really preview it because there were zero American. No, Grant Hallway was in there. There's a few American athletes in there. Yeah, Sinclair Johnson was supposed to be in there, but her flight got delayed by about a day. And so she couldn't go over another 3K. And she actually had some interesting comments um, regarding that race that I'll read in a minute. But the other reason we didn't preview it well then was Thank you, we man. were recording the podcast on Friday afternoon. The meet was U.S. time. The meet was taking place Saturday morning, U.S. time. And I know we have dedicated listeners, but expecting them to immediately listen to a podcast Friday night and then turn around and preview a race that's happening Saturday morning just didn't serve that much of a purpose. But there was some def- definitely some good racing going on. The 1500, I thought, was interesting because Josh Kerr, Earlier this year, he ran the 3K at Milrose, won it in 7.33. Terrific performance. And then afterwards, I asked him, you know, why he didn't run the mile. And he said, well, I didn't want to be a pacemaker for the On Athletics Club, essentially. I've already got the British indoor mile record. This thing was going to be going out super fast. Like, what's really the point? But then he shows up to 1,500 and, I mean... I love that he was in this race. It was good. It was him, Neil Gawley, Adele Michal of Spain. And Kerr already has the British record in the 1500, and he tries to go out and pace it, and he ends up just serving as a pacemaker for Neil Gawley, who breaks Josh Kerr's British record. Neil Gawley's an Under Armour athlete. So I found that somewhat amusing, but I also give credit to Josh Kerr. He didn't have to go out there and set the pace, but I think he kind of knew, oh, Neil's in this race. Neil's in great shape. I don't go out there and try to defend my record. Neil is going to break it. So Josh tried to go for it. He didn't. And Neil Gawley, who's been having a great season, gets the win. Also, big deal for Neil because he gets the buy into World Indoors next year, which in Glasgow, that's his hometown. He beats out Yard Nagus. Yard Nagus, who didn't run this race, was leading the standings. Now Gawley is ahead of him. So Gawley gets the win. He gets the British record and he gets the buy into World. It's a very good afternoon for him. Yeah, we didn't preview it. John and I knew that it was a few hours after we recorded the podcast. But when I saw the entries, I did get excited, mainly for this men's 1500, because this is one of the few races where the, where the winner was in doubt. And I'm like, wow, Kerr's in great shape off Milrose. And he ran like he thought he could just blast a fast one, because the rabbit drops out, he does all the work, and ends up taking Gurley to the record. So he's now lost the record. And then and the other races, like Laura Muir was supposedly going for a world record in 1,000, but... She hasn't been running great this year. Why would she get that? She doesn't even come close to her own PR. She, for her credit, she did go for it. She just blew up. I think she ran like 234 when her European record is 231 and the world record's like 230. Is that right? And then Keely Hutchinson, yeah, there was some talk of the world record, but mainly it was her going for her own European record or British record, which she barely beat. The, what do you mean, Robert? The pacing lights were set at the world record. That's what she was chasing. 
Okay, but how many times do I have to be told that Keely Hutchinson is in amazing shape this year and, you know, her coach is doing the broadcasting? John, help me out with her name. Jenny Meadows. And she's like, oh, Keely's going to be upset with this. But they keep telling me she's going to run super fast and she doesn't run super fast. I mean, she's running great. She's running fine. She's running about what she ran last year. But I keep hearing how she's in way better shape. So I don't know if this is a scenario. This happens a lot. Rich Kanaw, the head of the Atlantic Track Club, told me this. So, Rich, those of you that are younger youngsters, back in 1996, Rich did not make the Olympic team. And he was going to walk away from the sport. And Craig Mosbach, who ended up being the head of the USATF, I don't know if he was the head of USATF at the time, he said, Rich, I really think you should stay in sport. He's like, think about it. What else in Amer- What else in this world are you like fourth best in America at? So he stuck with it. And the very next year, he won a world championship uh, bronze medal, I believe, at Worlds Outdoors. And then he did make the Olympic team in 2000. And someone look it up. Did he even get out of the first round? All I know is he didn't do well. And I trained, Rich ran a marathon. We did a little training for the New York City Marathon. I didn't run it, but he ran it. And I remember asking him one day, I said, hey, man, like, what happened in Sydney? And he's like, oh, I did the classic mistake that everybody does. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I got over there like, sounds like weeks before the Olympics. And I knew I was in great shape. And I'd know what I'd done to win that bronze medal. And I basically did all the workouts and I just did them a little bit faster than I'd ever done them before. And I got to the race and I had nothing left. So you can subconsciously race your workouts, particularly if you're doing other workouts you've done before, doing a little bit faster. I mean, Weldon's college coach used to say, Weldon, you're running the same workouts as my All-Americans in, in the same time, so why aren't you running faster? But Weldon was doing them at too high of intensity level. So there you go. Keely, I'm not sure what's going on with the workouts. Sometimes you can do good workouts and the, and the race results don't show up for six months. So I don't you know. I think you're overreacting here. Keely Hodgkinson's had a great indoor season. She's run 157 three times. That's a great time indoors. It might just be as simple as running 155, which is the world record, is very hard. If you try to go out on that pace, most of the time, you're not going to be able to hold on to it. And She couldn't quite hold on, but she still held on well enough to run 157. Maybe if she chases a slightly less aggressive goal, she could run 156, but she wanted to go even faster, and that's fine. I don't think there's really anything to be worried about. She seems to be in a... She's run faster indoors than she ever has before. And her last two years, she got silver at the Olympics and Worlds. I don't think she has anything to worry about right now. What I think the whole world would like to see is how she stacks up against the thing Mo. But we may not see that until Budapest. John, thank you. I'm totally more agreeing with you. She's just biting a little more off the apple than she can chew. Like, it's... And I think the Josh Kerr race fits right in here. It's much easier to be the hunter than the hunted. When you're out there pushing the pace, look at Jakob Ingerbrandsen at the Worlds. When he's the guy like, oh, everything's on me. I got to lead. I got to dictate this thing. It's a lot easier for some guy to just sit behind you or girl and pick you off. For the record, Rich Kanaw bombed out. First round, Robert, like you said, ran 147.85 in his peak. Needed to run 0.41 faster to get out of it at the 2000 Olympics. The other thing I wanted to mention from this meet was Gudolf Sagai. 
Now, we know how good she is. She's the world record holder at the 1500 indoors. She's the world champion in the 5000 outdoors. And she's taken a run at a couple of world records this year indoors. This one, she missed it by 0.09 of a second. She ran 8.16.69 in the 3000 meters. And then earlier this year, she ran 4.16.16 in the mile in Torun. That missed the world record by three seconds. Whatever, rather, I mean, I want to say I've enjoyed it because I'm not taking pleasure in her pain, but I find it so amusing how like disgusted she is with these number two times in history when she crosses the finish line. She's just like looking at the clock. And I mean, this one I can understand. You're 0.09 away. Yeah, that's so close to to come that close after 15 laps of working so hard. But I do find it interesting. The standard she sets for herself is so high that she can run these fast times and then she just sort of looks fairly underwhelmed even though she's unleashed a terrific performance now i didn't see this race but there's a message board thread implying that she had to go around a lap runner is that true john it may be true i don't remember the specifics of it but then someone else in the thread also pointed out that Gonzebe de Barba had to pass a lap runner on the final term when she set her world record so it's just sort of something you have to deal with in indoor racing should we say should we change what is a world record should a world record just be a solo attempt with you and the pacing lights, no rabbits, nothing, just a pure time trial? I mean, I guess it might be boring to watch, but or we or you allow a machine to be the rabbit the whole race. You have a set, you know, we have a can't they design a thing that'll run around the track and block the wind for you? Like, why do we need humans to do it? I don't know. I I like seeing how dominant a world record is compared to the other athletes in the field. Like the whole, we have a sport where it nominally is about racing and a world record. It's kind of cool just to see, Hey, this is the fastest someone can go in a race. I mean, if you want to change it to something like that, like a Kipchoge style 159 challenge, I don't know. I mean, I guess there is some interest in it, but I don't really see what's wrong with the current world record setup we have. I've always wanted to see this, and we should organize like a Let's Run.com mile championship. It would be boring as F. You got to go, let's do it remote. You go out to the track, no watch, nothing allowed. Gun goes off, you run a mile as fast as you can, no pacing, no nothing. It's just you. I don't think you should be able to look at a clock, see how fast people can run. We could give a prize. Like we'll say at the end of the year, whoever runs the fastest in this wins. And somehow you need some verification because people, just like anything, people would cheat, right? Depending on how much money we awarded. Oh yeah, I'm sure there would be someone who had like someone holding up a video board off screen that even if you're recording it, they wouldn't be able to see it. But I think it would be that could be interesting. And then also, I think there should be a prize for whoever guesses closest to their time. Like if you thought said, "Oh, that felt like a 405.69," if you're the closest, you get a prize for that as well. Yeah, I mean, you can be way off. It's crazy. We're, we're like addicted to these little watches. And oh, so the guy, I'm pretty sure she lapped somebody with like over a lap to go, maybe like 250 meters to go. Somebody who was like third at the British Championships because I remember the announcer saying that. Yeah, honestly, watching live, I didn't give it much thought. I didn't think, oh, that totally threw her off from getting the world record. All right, should we talk college track? Because I can't wait to expose a lot of my former colleagues as total frauds. 
not very smart, despite their high salaries. Robert, you were once a member of the coaching fraternity. I know that you had friends because we've gone to meets and you've introduced me to some of these people and they seem to like you. But now that you're out of it, are you just renouncing your membership and burning your bridge and becoming a coach basher? Like It seems like there is nothing more on this podcast you enjoy than being able to bash a coach or criticize them. Am I misreading this? I'm just waiting for Under Armour to well, Mr. Plank it's... to get in. Just waiting for Mr. Plank to get in the car. I don't know if he's up at Sycamore Farms, his farm, or if he's at the headquarters. He can either drive north or south. Just come up to my house and say, Robert, we need you. We need you to be the Jerry Schumacher of our group. Under Armour won, and we're going to talk to J- Jacob Thompson later. They won a national championship this week. They Neil Gorley's Under Armour. The New York City Marathon? Clearly their shoes must be better. Either that or their athletes are laughing amazing now. Well, Doc's guys had a nice little run. Combination. Jacob Thompson, national champion, Neil Goley, British record, ran 349 at Milrose, and Sharon Lachetti winning the New York City Marathon. It's been a pretty good six months for them. But John, it's sad. This Robert, like, you know, like a lot of what I see is the former runners who are posting about their ex- exploits. I mean, some of these guys are older. Like, they're posting on Facebook. You know, like, look at me in 1984. We're just, I'm like, wow. But, John, the Ivy League Championship, Robert has latched on to broadcasting the Ivy League Championships. They were this weekend. He wasn't even the broadcaster for that. Like, he used to be in the arena by coaching. He never really made it as an athlete. Tried to make the Olympic trials, just came up short. Then he was in the arena, John, out there in the big arena coaching all these Ivy League titles. Falls in love. Got to make a decision. Coaching. Or to love. Goes full-time with Let's Run. Now he's a beautiful child, but he's no longer in that arena. Now that looks like the announcing thing has fallen by the side, and all he, he's just turning into this bitter, bitter man. Got a milestone birthday this year. Hopefully he's on this podcast in a decade. How did the announcing thing fall apart, Robert? Was it just COVID? Because I listened to some of those broadcasts. You were good. I don't want to bash my ex-employers worth of listening to the podcast. As my... As my good friend who's probably listening to this podcast likes to say is, do you really think the administrators at these schools are really the best of the best? No. I, I, what do you mean? I, I did the broadcast last, last year indoors. And then I think it's, it's a lot of times this, the producers, like they like to hire the same guy like for all the sports just because it's easier. Mm-hmm. So every time it's, it's held, I, I get a text message from the wife of a current Ivy League coach. And she says, your stuff is much better. But no, I, I Stephen Haas is doing a great job with Under Armour, but he needs like a general manager or someone a sounding board. I can just be the sounding board. But no, the reason why I bring this up is we like to put coaches on pedestals. And I've always thought if you know running, you can coach a superstar high school or you can superstar, superstar pro. It's not different. It's coaching. And we, we, who's Cameron Myers' coach? Nobody had heard of this guy. He's got a guy who's 16 running 355 in the mile. Like, for some reason, when a high schooler does it, we don't praise the coach. When a pro does it, we're like, oh, it must be the coaching. What I'm trying to point out with the Japan stories and this stories is it's the talent. The coach is the jockey. The athlete is the horse. And that gives me to the story of the ACC men's 5,000 meters. So the ACC is an American conference if you're overseas. It's 
this is the perfect story for the year 2023 because it shows you so much of just it, it combines so many things all at once. To me, it's insane that the ACC conference has 15 teams in it. You've got Florida State all the way up to Boston College. You now have girls field hockey teams flying all over the country. We're supposed to be worried about you know the environment. We're flying for the mid the Thursday night game or field hockey. Like instead of having regional conferences, everything has gone national. It's insane. But when you have 15 teams in a conference, it's going to be hard to get in the fast heat. There was guys that had run 1350 in the 5,000 that did not get into the fast heat of the men's 5,000 at ACCs. So the gun goes off in the slow heat. And what happens? Syracuse senior Paul O'Donnell wins the slow heat in 1350.94. Second is 1352, 1353, two, 1357, 14 flat, 14 flat. So six guys run 14 flat or faster. Then we get to the second heat. We've got all these schools, so many of them are going basically all in on distance. You've got Notre Dame with three guys in the field. You've got UNC with Chris Miltenberg, who's coached top teams at Stanford and UNC. He's got one, two, three, four, five guys in, in the field. You got Wake Forest with one guy. They were top four at NCAA Cross. NC State's got a couple guys. Syracuse had three, but why would Syracuse want to piece the pace, push the pace? They're already winning the, the meet. And these guys know that if they don't break 1350, they're not winning the race. And what happens? The gun goes off, and you know, 1350, what is that? About four, 440 is 1335, so 430 would be 1405. It's 425 pace. So you got to run the first mile in around 430. These geniuses with all these high-paid coaches, let these kids go out and run the first mile at 444. And these kids are so used to rabbited race after rabbited race and their soupy shoes. When the race doesn't matter, the only thing that matters is the time. They don't know how to race. 2K, it's, five, it's 556, and it's all but over. The winner of the slow heat runs like 14 flat and places six. Wait, I have a question. I know these kids are used to rabbited races, but are they really rabbited? Is somebody rabbiting like a 1345 college race or they just shoot the gun off and... It depends. You might have a rabbit in that race or it might just be a bunch of guys who are all there to run fast. and some, They know that the place doesn't really matter, so someone will take it up. Take turns. I mean, yeah, this look, this shouldn't be allowed to happen. Well, no, it, it should be the rules. I'm fine with the rules allowing this to happen. I think it's actually amusing when you see someone win from the slow heat. Drew Hunter did at USA Indoors in 2019, winning the two mile. And throwback for our HEPS fans, Tate Rutherford, 2014 Indoor HEPS. He won the 3K out of the slow heat. Thomas Awad beat Will Gohegan in the fast heat. Quote, unquote, fast heat. I remember that well. But yeah, someone, you've got all these coaches, you've got the athletes. Your first job needs to be, okay, what was the winning time in the slow heat? Well, what pace is that roughly? Like, where do I need to be? And someone, you know, needs to be yelling, hey, pick it up. Or you, know, you, you got to start running faster. Because like you said, once they got to a mile, this thing was basically over. Uh, I found it amusing, but... You need to. This is the sort of thing you need to be on top of when it happens. And we've seen this. I mean, we saw it with Josh Kurt. There's a reason why you don't want to lead, and kids aren't. But kids aren't used to leading because, well, first of all, they don't 
if I was them, I'd say, all right, someone's on the team's going to take it for a quarter. And someone else is going to take it for another quarter. You've got to get the first mile going. Then even, even then it could, it could like it's thirteen fifty is pretty fast, but just I, I loved it. I love the story. Well, can we give a shout out as well to the guys in the first heat, uh, especially Paul O'Donnell, who won that race for doing the opposite of what the guys in the second heat did. They went for it. They tried to run fast and do the best for their schools and get those points, and they were rewarded for it. Like running for thirteen fifty in the slow heat at ACC is the personal best. That's a great job. So. Congrats to those guys in the first heat who really went for it and tried to run their fastest. And then the women's action in ACCs. Well, distance-wise, it was Caitlin to his show. We'll get to that in a minute. But the meet ended, and I'm just... I, I, this brings back my fears. My worst fears as a coach. When I was at Cornell, we did win eight straight Ivy League championships, but I was always worried about the worst-case scenario, particularly when it came down to the relays and we didn't have more than a 10-point lead and what could happen. And one time a guy knocked another guy over and they said they were going to rerun. You guys know why I'm, why I'm obsessed with rerunning the race, John? What I say in this podcast, before I die, I want to see a race rerun. It's because at the first outdoor Ivy League championship that I ever went to as a coach, we won it by like two points, but only after our star 400 guy pushed and shoved the Princeton guy to, down to the, the ground on the final leg when all we needed to do was finish second. We, we were way ahead. All we had to do was finish second. What happened? They start battling on the last turn. Our guy shoved, puts his arm out and just shoved him to the ground. Blatant fell. And once he crossed the finish line, he was disqualified as he should have been. But then they said, we're actually going to rerun the race. So Wait, it happened? They said they were going to do it. I went crazy and was like screaming. My, my boss is like, calm down, Robert. They're not going to rerun the race. They've never rerun a race. And somehow they changed their mind and did not rerun the race. So, Oh, that's it, the origin. I always yes. thought it was just because you had some bizarre fascination for it. But now I see that you were actually wronged by it in this instance. So wait, you guys lost the meet by two points? No, we won the meet because they didn't rerun it, even though they probably should have. So I didn't realize it. This was deep in my soul. I didn't. I just kind of realized this this week, like, wow, that's probably why you're so obsessed with rerunning the race. But ACC women's race comes down to the four by four. Duke is about to win their first outright indoor championship. They've tied for tied for one before, but they've got a great four by four. They've got on the anchor, they get the stick in first or second. They've got the ACC 400 champion on the anchor. All they have to do is finish fifth or sixth. They're way ahead. They and Miami are battling it out in the last leg. And then coming into the final stretch, the Florida State anchor, John, you know her name? The Florida State anchor? You mean the Miami anchor or the Duke anchor? Who are you talking about here? Yep. Megan McGinnis starts to tie up. Her arms are all over the place. She sprawls her arm out. It hits the Miami girl. She drops the stick literally like probably one meter before the finish line. Goes across and doesn't go back to pick up the stick. If she had, she would have to do it within seven seconds. They're disqualified. They lose the meet. And I don't know what to think about this. Some people are like, oh, she should have just run for like third. There was no reason for her to battle it out. But I've done the math. They were a potentially trying, they were trying to also qualify for NCAAs in the four by four. And that time would have either placed them 12th or 13th in the country. Because right now, um, Miami ended up winning the race is 13th. I'm not sure if they're quite fast enough because I didn't see the official time. So I don't know, man. It's just a brutal bad luck. 
I think. Yeah, Robert, that's what this is. It's really bad luck and unfortunate. I can't fault Megan McGuinness at all for going all out to try to win the race. You want to win the 4x4 at conference. You want to qualify for NCAAs in the relay. And to not to just do that and settle for second and just say, okay, we're just going to take second and win the meet when your biggest worry is, okay, if I, I'm going to drop the baton somehow, I, I just don't think you can allow the fear to cloud your thinking that way. So I thought it, I have no problem with them going all out to try to win. And it's just the worst timing possible because at the end of an anchor leg like that, it, it is interesting watching this race before the incident happened. I kind of took notice of McGuinness's running form and her arms. They do go side to side a lot. Her baton, she's holding it, you know, it's going outside of her, her body a lot more than most relay runners would be. So I was like, oh, that is kind of dangerous. But yeah, she she's right at the finish line. She's totally exhausted from giving it her all. She'd already won the ACC 400 earlier in the day. Like she, This is the end of a conference meet. She's going to be very tired. She's just crossed the finish line. Then suddenly, to expect her within seven seconds to have the presence of mind to having been totally exhausted at the end of the 4x4, go back, pick up the baton, recross the finish line. I just don't think that's even realistic to do. You're, you're not... It's... That's not really a feasible ask of her. This, the moment the baton came out of her, her hand, and I don't blame the Miami runner either. It was just like kind of bad timing. The baton was out in front of her. She ran through it. There wasn't any sort of foul in the Miami runner. It's just like really awful timing, really bad luck for, for Duke and Megan McGuinness. The timing was just bizarre, John, because she's across the finish line. She's finished the race, but then she doesn't have the baton. So you, usually you drop the baton, you like, pick it up, but she's like, wait, I'm past the finish. Where's the baton? It's all on the infield on the other side. Like, I think at that point, you know, she's like meters from the finish. She's like, I've got it. I'm going to win the race. And then the contact happens. She's across the finish line. She's like, where the hell's the baton? Like, it's completely bizarre. I mean, also, if they weren't trying to qualify for NCAAs, you could argue the coach should have said, hey, Whatever you do, don't drop the baton. But then there's the race in their race, right? The goal is to win every race, right? So should you put the team stuff before the individual race? I think you do, though. We see it. People play it safe in a 5K or a 3K or something like that. So it's hard to fault anyone, though. I think this is just life, man. Shit happens. Well, that's the thing. And what's troubling to me is, and there was a similar controversy in the Ivy League heptagonal four by eight hundred men side. People are like, we got to DQ someone. I'm like, no. Sometimes stuff happens. So much in society, we, something happens. It's not expected, and we're like, we have to blame somebody. We see it in politics all the time. Sometimes no, just stuff happens. Like no one's to blame. Like they wanted to qualify for NCAs. I see why they're going for it. It's just really unfortunate she happened to drop the stick where she did. And yeah, I didn't understand this. Now I was going to tell people if you haven't seen it. You can watch the video on Let's Run, but it appears the video has been taken down by the uploader. Like this was great drama. If I was I would leave that video up. Like, why is ACC taking that down? But the Duke, someone from the Duke staff tweeted out, unfortunate call from the officials for these women who ran their hearts out and competed with grit all weekend. What call from the officials could possibly help them here? The only thing I'm thinking of is, you know, if they determine that the Miami girl purposely knocked the baton out of your hand, like, you know, let's say Miami and, and Duke are the ones battling it out for the team title and Miami knocks it out on purpose. And under that scenario, 
well, you'd probably DQ Miami, but let's say Miami's already ahead. You know, you would want to rerun the race. That's the only thing that could help them. If you determine this was a foul, you'd have to rerun the race. But the problem here is, since you've already got slow heat times already recorded, you'd have to wait a number of hours later to rerun the race because otherwise you're not going to run a time fast enough to beat these other schools' times. Right. Yeah, you can't just say... I mean, the baton never made it across the finish line. So Duke never finished the race. I don't really understand what they're what they'd be looking for for an outcome there. So it's... Yeah, I think it's just really unfortunate timing. The weird thing is... Were there... Was there, like, grease on all the batons across the country this weekend? Because I can't remember a weekend where there were more drop batons in relay races. I've covered this sport for close to a decade. You see it happen every once in a while, but multiple teams did it in the SEC meet. Texas A&M dropped the baton. LSU and the women's 4x4 dropped the baton. And then the Haps in the men's 4 bay, I believe, Robert pointed out as well. And a lot of it was because of runners. They were running probably their third or fourth race of the day or of the weekend. They were, they were tired. And their form, they're, they're swinging the baton around a little bit, and it's hitting another runner as they're coming past or as they're you know, bunched up in traffic. And I just can't remember that happening, that happening very often in the past. I never really gave that much thought to it, but it made me think, oh, I, maybe I take for granted so many relay runners, their form is actually, their arms are pumping just straight forward, so the baton's not really coming into as much danger. But for whatever reason, this seemed to happen a whole lot this weekend across the country. I want to correct myself. I said I've never seen a race rerun. I probably did watch one race that was rerun. I don't remember watching this, but it did happen. 2016 Olympics. The U.S.'s baton was knocked out by somebody else in the 4 by one and they let us rerun the preliminary heat. But they didn't rerun the whole race. USA just ran their own race in their own lane. I've seen that happen. That's happened at U- at uh well, juniors, I think Angela Tenorio did it once. Uh, it happened, I think there was a hurdler who did it at Worlds last year. Like That sort of thing happens where one athlete will run the race by themselves. I can't remember seeing an entire race rerun, though. And it's usually prelims where the athlete just needs to hit a certain time. I actually think that would be interesting to see in a 1500 where you've got an athlete going for a time qualifier because usually it's just a sprint. It makes sense. You're trying to get a time qualifier or a sprint race, but to see someone run an entire... If you had to run an entire 1500 and try to get a time qualifier by yourself, I feel like that would be kind of... I'd like to see that happen, though. I'd feel bad for the athlete. All right, let's talk about Caitlin Tuohy. This woman is so popular. High school phenom in America. Now she's living up to the hype as a collegian. She's leading the nation, or at least the NCAA, in the mile, 424.26, by five seconds, 3,835 by 10 seconds in 5,015-15. So I know she's not leading the U.S. in the 5,000. John, are those world leading, U.S. leading marks in the three? And the, no, it's not the three either because the monster ran faster. But she's doing incredibly well. Remember, she got beat by an American in all of those races, except for the 5K. Okay, but same enough. American, in fact. Alicia Monson beat her in the mile in 3K. But whatever. I'm just feeling a little guilt because I was praising her, saying without a doubt she's the best runner in the NCAA. And then someone started a thread saying, Rojo doesn't like to kick into it. I'm like, what? We just praised her. Anyways, she's having an amazing year, having an amazing career. And at ACC, she 
ran a fourth twenty three split in the DMR, but they couldn't even win. She's too far back, and then she came back and won the three thousand eight fifty one with a four thirty six final sixteen hundred, and got a standing ovation. I mean, and they, I think the fans realized they're seeing a really special distance runner. So wait, 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 wait. I heard this thing about a standing ovation. Has anyone actually seen this? I watched the clip. They didn't pan to the stands. To me, it just seemed the same as any winner of a distance race, where they just they people clap when the winner comes in. Some of them, I'm sure, were standing. But I, I, I don't know if they, I don't know. I, like, if anyone was at ACCs, can you tell me was this some sort of jaw dropping moment where the entire stadium just paused and bossed in Caitlin Tui's greatness, or was this just sorry, Caitlin Tui's greatness, or was it just? a typical distance race ending. Cause that's what it sounded like on the broadcast when I watched the race. Thank you, John. Cause usually I'm not going to go back and like rewatch some, I think it was a three K where she's just crushing everybody. What's the point? And I see the thread and I'm like, I got to see the standing ovation and I rewind it towards the end of the race. And I'm like at the very finish. I don't see anything. So then I go, maybe, maybe it's at the introduction, but I go back like a lap. And I hear the announcer say, Caitlin Tui getting the standing ovation she deserves. And I kind of look at the crowd and it didn't look that different, but were that loud. Like, I I recognize the standing ovations in English from English soccer, John. You know, like, for those of you guys who aren't English soccer fans, and like a random point in a game, it'll be like the 54th minute. And all of a sudden, the fans just start clapping together in unison and just cheer, just clap, 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 clap. And they always honor like some fan who was 54 years old and died or something. It's like some random thing. But you can clear, you can clearly tell that's that, a oh, standing ovation. Yeah. Everyone in the stadium is standing and clapping. Yeah. I don't know if that happened with Caitlin Tui. They should have because she won this race by 10 seconds. It was some pretty good runners. It was a dominant performance. Well, there's somebody who's got a Caitlin Tui like YouTube page. So he created the video to try to get views. But didn't the announcer say it? Anyways. Uh, the, the question that John seems to be obsessed with is what should she run at NCAA? She could triple. Hell, she could actually quadruple. So she's the number one seed in the mile, the three and the five. I think NC State has the number two time in the DMR. But to me, the DMR doesn't make a lot of sense because they didn't even, well, if you're trying to win, it depends if you're trying to maximize points. They didn't even win ACCs. With her fresh on the anchor, why would they win NCAs? I don't know if I'm obsessed with this question. You're actually the one in the week that was who broached the possibility of her running the mile 3K and 5K. Now, that is the question to me, though. The entries are due today, I believe. So you might even know what event she's running by the time this podcast publishes. But would she run the mile 3K and 5K, the events where she's the collegiate record holder in the first two, the NCAA leader in the last one? No one's ever won all three on the men's or women's side in NCAAs. We have seen some of the stars of years past try this triple. Lawley Lang tried it in 2014, didn't win any of them, basically broke him, but then comes back out towards and still won the 5K. Edward Cheserek in 2017, he wins the 3K and the 5K but he got beat in the mile by Josh Kerr. That was Josh Kerr's coming out party at NCAAs. Caitlin Tui, I think, first of all, I guess my first question to you guys, if she runs all three, do you think she would win all three? I think she would. 
I think she's that much better and than everyone else. And also Parker Valby, who you would think would be her biggest challenge. We don't even know if Parker Valby's running NCAAs because she didn't run at the SEC meet. We don't have an explanation for why she would be qualified in the 3K. But. Well, first of all, I don't think Parker Valby, based on her current form, would be her biggest challenge. No, I agree. I think it would be Hilda, well, probably Hilda Lemmoy, but then Hilda Lemmoy got beat at SEC, so I don't even, I'm not even sure. Maybe it would be mostly Challenge got. So the order is like mile prelim, then like a 3K on one day, and then... No, no, no. It's mile, mile prelim on Friday, 5K final, a couple hours later, or less than a couple hours, I think, actually. And then on Saturday, sorry, yeah, on Saturday, you would have the mile final and the 3K final. I like the order of events. I think if she had to run the mile last, that's where she'd be the most vulnerable. But she, can she come back and win the final 3K? Probably. I'd say she needs to go for it, John, but wait, Lolly Wang and Cheserek are the two? Or did Rupp try this as well? Rupp no, Rupp did, right? did the... Both Rupp and Cheserek successfully won the 5K, 3K, and anchor, anchor leg of the DMR. They won all three. Okay, I just looked this up. There's one thing no one's considering here. And it's significantly harder to do now. Oh, because they've they've changed the schedule because it used to be the men's and women's events would run basically concurrently or you'd have one after the other. But now you have all the women's events followed by all the men's events or vice versa. So there is a smaller gap between the two events, correct, Robert? Much smaller. I mean, this is ridiculous. Like, well, let's run said we want quicker track meets. The mile final is at 4 o'clock. The 4 by 4 is at 5.20. The meet's over in an hour and a half on the women's side. So you used to have both the men and women going at the same time. Then there's going to be an hour and a half gap. God, John, you and I as journalists are going to be there all day. But that makes it super hard. So if I'm her, I don't care about the DMR. DMR. I don't want her running the DMR. Well, she could, I guess. She's got... She's got more time from the mile prelims to the DMR finals an hour 45. But if I'm her, I'm definitely running the mile and the, the 5,000. Well, even that's not easy. Mile prelim, 4 o'clock, 5,000 final, 5.05. Yeah, and then the mile final on Saturday is 4 o'clock, the 3,000 final at 5 o'clock. I will point this out. In 2021, the schedule was like this, and Cole Hawker won the mile and the 3K. Uh, he didn't also run the DMR, but it is possible. Look, as fan of the sport, what and do we love to he, see? Robert? Cole went on to get, what, six in the Olympics? I mean, that race stunned me when he did that. He came back tired after like an hour's rest. It is so much harder to do it tired and beat Cooper Tier was fresh. So yeah. that was amazing. Uh, I, I would like, if I was with them, I would enter her. Well, if she wants to do anything, whatever she wants to do and the coach thinks it's smart, go ahead and do it. They deserve the benefit of the doubt, but if I was her, I would enter the mile, the five, and the three. And if you're too tired after the mile, you can just not run the three. Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, look, what's most fun as a fan? It's clearly if she goes after the triple. We love to see the stars chasing greatness. Tui is the best distance runner in the NCAA. That would be a real challenge. But this is she's what twenty one years old. She 
maybe she's 20 years old. I think birthday's around this time. I don't know. Uh, she is going to be wanting to do big things outdoors. I'm sure she wants to break 15 minutes. I'm sure she wants to make the U.S. team for the World Championships. Does it make sense to... I don't think this is... I think it would necessarily burn her out, but is this the best move, tripling an NCAA indoors for her development this season and long-term development? Probably not. So I think the smart move is probably just to do two. I think mile 3K will be fun. Uh, 3K, 5K will be easier to win. But yeah, as a fan, the most exciting storyline would be to see her try the triple, but it probably doesn't make sense. And she's never won an NCAA indoor crown, so she bites up too much. I still think she's going to win something. I hope she does the triple. I really do. And who's the biggest rival? I think it's going to be Lauren Gregory of Arkansas, John. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the NCAA list and it's Hilda Cola Momo of Alabama, who's closest to her on the 3000 list, but she lost SECs. Gregory won the mile and the 3000, beating her. So when 431 the mile, you know, I don't know what event she's going to do, but she probably, the problem with, with, uh, you know, Gregory is she's probably going to have to do double duty herself because Arkansas is in it for the team title. Yeah, well, we'll find out this week. The entries will come out. I guess we should we should give a shout out. There were some fast sprint performances over the weekend uh, in the NCAA level. The 400 meter record was broken twice. The NCAA record in the span of 90 minutes. First, Resident at Aleke of Texas runs 50-33, so that was 100th under Candelaris Ellis's collegiate record from 2018. And then 80 minutes later, Talitha Diggs of Florida, who was the NCAA and U.S. champ outdoors last year, runs 50.15 to break the collegiate record and the American record. So that's going to be a great showdown between Adeleke and Diggs in the 400 NCAA indoors. We also had Adeleke's uh, Texas teammate Julian Alfred broke the collegiate record in the 60 meters for the third time this year. She ran 6.97. I'm going to say it. We could be on world record watch at NCAA indoors because she ran 6.97 in Lubbock. Lubbock is about 3,200 feet. Albuquerque, where we just saw Aaliyah Hobbs run the American record, that's 4,950 feet. So if Ad- if Alfred runs, you know, she, her performance is a little better. She gets an extra 1,700 feet of altitude. The world record was 692. Just saying it's not out of the realm of possibility that she could challenge that at NCAAs in Albuquerque. So that's something fun to watch as well. And by the way, she was one of the women's that was DQ'd at Worlds. So it wasn't just Devin Allen with the false starts. World Athletics... People, if you're listening, can we get an update, please? Thank you. Looking at the uh, NCAA team title, cloudtrainingsystems.com. If you go there, they have a thing. with It'll score the descending order list. So NC State women would be fourth on the women's side, but probably not in the hunt for the win because all 42 of their points are somehow basically probably tied to Caitlin Dewey. Um, on the men's side, Arkansas is favored to get 53, Texas Tech 44, and Washington 42. And almost... Most of those Washington points are coming from their middle distance runners, where they have eight sub four minute milers. John, you watched them in person this week at Boston University. Early in the year, they had eight guys break four. Now, 
because they're so concerned about global warming, they've flown out to Boston to do it again. And all eight did it again, right, John? Yeah, well, only seven of them can run NCAAs because Sam Ellis, who's the Princeton grad transfer, doesn't have eligibility. But yeah, they all did it because a couple of them weren't in position to qualify. And now it looks like pretty much all of them are going to get in because they have six of their seven are in the top 16. And then they have Aaron All, who is number 17. He only needs one scratch to get in in the mile and it's very likely one of his I bet one of his teammates is going to scratch maybe Brian Fayo Kieran Lum which would allow them to have all guys you know qualified for this event so th- this was one of the debates we were having is if you are Andy Powell who's the Washington distance coach what do you do with these guys do you declare them all in the mile kind of cool to see seven guys from the same school in the mile you know can they all make the final they they went one five seven at NCAA Outdoors last year in the fifteen hundred. Can you improve on that, or do you spread them out a little bit? And I think my thinking was, yeah, it would be cool to see them all in the mile, but the best meet you can have, you're probably spreading them out. I think Brian Fay, you put him in the three k and five k. You hope he can score some points in both of those events. He's in, he's qualified in the mile, the three k, and the five k. So pretty impressive for Brian Fay, and then. You want one of these guys, presumably, to anchor the DMR fresh. And I was thinking that it would make most sense to have that be Kieran Lum because he's also qualified in the 3K. You can have him run the five k, the 3K on Saturday, the DMR on Friday. He was their anchor when they qualified. The problem was they ran 916, which would have broken the old collegiate record by three seconds, but they got beat in that race by Oklahoma State. So even if you put him on the anchor, like it, it's pretty crazy. Washington has this ridiculous crew of milers. They have six guys who run 353 or faster, five who run 352 or faster. They might not, not even win the DMR because there are so many other good schools right now. Like They also have a 146-800 guy who has not run one of these fast mile times, Cass Elliott. Yet, you've got all these other schools running crazy fast in the DMR as well, led by Oklahoma State. So I don't know, it's going to be interesting, but I'm excited to see how they deploy the resources, what could happen. It's also interesting, Joe Wascom, who was the NCAA champion in the 1500, the NCAA second in the mile this year on the descending order list at 351. He ran this race, but he was seventh out of the eight guys in this race, partially because he was the ones tossed with taking the pace once the rabbit fell off. Several things here. One, yeah, you got to go 3K. Whoever's running 3K fresh runs the DMR fresh, so you don't double dip. I mean, they're in it for the team title outside shot. They get, they're projected to get 42 points, Texas Tech 44, Arkansas 53. So that's interesting. If you're all in the mile, you're beating each other up. But what's interesting to me is to take another shot here, bashing coaches. Waskin wasn't the only one to run bad here, John. I mean, if you want to poke holes in any coach, you can. Like, people are bashing Schumacher on the boards, and I'm always defending him on there. But Brian Fay, who ran 352, runs 358. So their top two milers both ran 358 in BU. 
So congratulations, Andy Powell. You just took a 351 and 352 guy and had him run 358. Now, what does this show? It just shows that when you're trying to force a time and you're trying to run th- under 350, it's really hard to do. And when it doesn't go well, you can blow up. Laura Muir did it. She tried to go for the time. She blows up, whatever. So, but they're, they're going to need somebody. These other guys that, that got into the field, we really expect, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think if they're going to be in it for the team title, they need Waskam on his game on his A game. Now he said he's going to be fine. It was interesting talking to him about that, you know, but there's a, then his confidence sounds like when he talked to you, he wasn't, he wasn't too concerned about that. The other thing that was fascinating to me is, you know, Hey, it's amazing. They have eight in the same team, but John, you, you did some great research in the week that was. All right. You can give me the stats because you wrote it. How many people on this team broke five before they ever set foot on the university of Washington campus? All eight of them did, Robert. They were well under five minutes. Uh, I think what you meant to ask is how many of them broke four before they stepped foot on Washington's campus, and that was uh, five of them had done that. Who cares? Do we need to like nitpick? Like, okay, a lot of these guys are old. A lot of them graduate transfers. They're still really good runners. It's amazing how fast this team is running. I think it comes back to you. You guys were waving the Joe Wascom. Banner all week. Oh, Joe Wascom's going to go sub 350. I think this shows the same thing that the Kerr race showed. It's hard when to go like force a time is something that's hard to do. I mean, look at Nagoose when he still busted the 347. The pace lagged in the middle of the race, and then he just kicked like mad and ended up with a really good time. It's not like he they set out at 347 pace the entire way. Yeah, and look, it's not nitpicking them to say that four of the guys are 24 years old or what, that they what, what, came from other schools. Why are we schools. wasting our time on it? Like, Because oh, we're not... Well, if it's not wasting time. Andy Powell coached Andrew Weeding, Matthew Centrowitz. Who's the third guy? One, two, three at NCAs. AJ Acosta, who was second in that race, by the way. Centro was third. But no, look, Andy Powell's a good coach. I've said that many times in this podcast. And... I I don't care. The NCAA rules, th- these guys all have eligibility under the rules. That's fine. I don't have an issue with it. I just think some people get interested. What's their background? You know, how did this come together? Well, some of them have been running at a very high level even before they got there. Now they've come together. They're trained together. They're in an even higher level. Five guys at 352. Again, it's ridiculous, but <laughs> I I don't think it's bashing them to just point out, yeah, four of them are 24. Uh, they've come to it from different ways. It's very interesting to point out, and Weldon assumes that everyone listening to the podcast has read the article. I was trying to repoint out some of the things in the article. Four of the guys are 24, five or 23 or older. That's old for a collegiate athlete. Not everyone. Some people have are struggling to, to get to, to keep they're juggling two jobs. They've got a couple of kids. They're twenty thousand dollars in credit card debt. They're not on Let's Run reading every damn article that Jonathan Galt puts out. So it's interesting, and I'm trying to make people feel better. Like, hey. If I had five guys that ran sub four before they came to my college team and another one that ran four flat in high school, I'd guarantee, goddamn to you, most coaches in America could get six of them to break four. Yeah, well, they're not just breaking four, though. They're running. They're, I mean, the, the NCAA list right now, six of the top milers, six of the top eight in the country are in Washington. That's one of the most ridiculous things I've seen in a long, long time. But they need a rule. They need a rule somehow. If they all enter the mile, I want them all in the mile. Screw anything else. But they put them in separate heats because is it possible for seven guys in one heat to make the final? It's unfair if they bump each other out. 
I, I agree with you on that. Well done. I do think it is possible though, because you take 10 to the, f- wait, do they take 10 to the NCAA indoor final? That would be top four and, or is it 12? Probably 12. I need uh, to look at it. Then yes, they need to draw the heats in such a way that all of the Washington guys have a theoretical possibility of making the final. And and if you have more people, like Cruz Culpepper left Washington, that would be eight. They can get another guy. I don't know. So I want them to take all 12 spots in the final. That should be the goal for some team. If you do that, Robert will admit you're a good coach. Tom <laughs> Manning is a great coach. Well, I thought what I most loved about, about Jonathan's article, even though some people think the age thing is a ding, it's a fact, is John wrote, this may not even be the best collection of milers that Andy Powell's ever coached. The guy's a ridiculous mid coach. He, I mean, he, co- he coached the one, two, three NCAAs with Central, Weeding, and Acosta, and he also had Mac Fleet on that team. And, you know, he's done a good job. I also think Ben Thomas, who was like Gopher Morgan, is an amazing middle distance coach. So there's a lot of amazing coaches out there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, also, people forget they've got a sub four high school miler on their roster, Leo Dashbach, who hasn't really done that much in college. But the Andy Powell's group, the, the 2010 team was amazing, but also the 2015 team, which they went one, two, three in the NCAA 3K indoors with Cesarek, Jenkins, and Gohegan. And they had on that team Johnny Gregoric, Sam Prakel. Blake Haney, who was really good in college, Colby Alexander, like you put all those guys in super shoes. They could, and Daniel Wynn, sorry, shout out Daniel Wynn. Uh, you put all those guys in super shoes in 2023, they might be running 352, 353 a weld. That was, that was a super, super group. So I actually, this is something I need to ask Andy the next time I talk to him. You put, a four by mile with the 2010 team, 2015, 2023. Which of those teams wins the four by mile? I want to see what he has to say there. The biggest thing, guys, you just glossed right over it. Talitha Diggs. She's only 20. Her mother, Joetta Clark Diggs. Yes, four time Olympian at 800 meters. We're always talking about the future. Can people move up? She just broke the American record at 400, but this is the distance podcast. If this was, let's think of a comparison. If this was Johnny Gray's child, we'd all be saying, oh my God, Johnny Gray's, we would have led the podcast with this. I think this is the hidden sexes in the world. Led the podcast with it and been like, Johnny's Gray's kid, should he move up? When will he move up? So, do you guys think Talitha Diggs should move up or will move up? No and no. She won the U.S. title last year as a 19-year-old. Like, why Why the hell would you move up? I mean, the 400 is not an easy race, but why, why, would you, why the hell would you want to move up in distance? Aren't we always saying that you want to run the shortest distance possible when you're racing? Like, you only run the 200 if you're not good enough in the 100. You, you know, you keep moving up. You only run distance if you're not good enough in the sprints. Like, why would you move up to the, the 800 other than to satisfy the let's run message boards who always want to know what every 400 runner could run at 800? Well, you would move up if you're better at it. Considering her mother was a four-time Olympian, I think she shouldn't rule it out. But right now, I would stick in the 400. She's doing amazing. amazing. And, you know, it, it, it's it's cool to see. But can we go back one real quick to this BU mile? Because we didn't even mention 
the winners of the two races. Shout out to the Brooks Beast, Henry Wynn. He actually won the fast heat, 352.51, although it ended up being ended up being slower than the winning time of the slow heat of the second heat. I guess they were considered equal heats. Uh Gordy Beamish ran and won that in 351. So Henry Wynn doesn't get enough love. And I think it's because Henry, if you're if you're if you or your parents are listening, you might want to turn it off right now. Like I view him the same way I view like Johnny Gregoric. Like the ceiling is is like making a US team. And I know Johnny made a final, but is like making a, a US team and s- somehow getting into the world's final and getting 10th or 12th place. Whereas these other guys, the ceiling seems higher. But the guy just won the damn meet, beat Cooper Tier. So can we give him some love? Yeah, you're not wrong. Cooper Tier is. I think more talented than Henry Wynn, but Henry Wynn's a fine runner. He, yeah, he, he could make a U.S. team this year. Absolutely. Uh, but is he ever going to medal? I find that hard to believe, but is that the standard we should hold every single runner to? I mean, perfectly, Henry Wynn's had a perfectly respectable career to this point. Well, what was interesting is what Tier talked to you, said to you after this race, John. First of all, it gets back to you can't force it. I was hoping to be in the 348, 349 range, and I think with a different race I could have been. But in reading the quotes, it didn't seem like he was too concerned, even though he ran 350 in the mile Aster and only 352 this year. He seemed pretty upbeat to me, John, about how things are going with the Bowman Track Club. But he sounds like there's sort of an internal debate as to what he should run. And it sounds like this is Steve Prefontaine's debate all over again. He, he, here's a quote from Cooper Cheer. Jerry definitely thinks I'm a 5K guy, and I'm still trying to prove I'm a 1,500-meter guy. And I put this up on the message board. Ask people what they thought. What do you think he should run, 15 or 5? This year, I think he should run the 1500. I think it's the easier path to a team. It's not easy, especially if, you know, if Nagoose and Cole Hawker are going to be healthy and firing all cylinders at USA's, but he is the reigning US champion at that event. Let's remember that, okay? He had a very good year last year. Until he got hurt. I would run the 1500 this year. I think long term, I do agree. I think he's more of a 5K guy. That's probably his best event. Looking ahead to 24, 25. But for this year, I'd stick in the 1500. Because I also, I do we, I don't think he has a chance to medal in the 5K this year. And if that's the case, like why would if he has more fun doing the fifteen hundred and he's a, still a top fifteen hundred runner, one of the best in the country, yeah, let him do the fifteen hundred. I don't see that being that much of a difference. Uh, but long term, yeah, I think probably the five k is his best event, and I think yeah, I think he maybe could medal in the five k long term. So that's probably why you should stick in it. For me, I don't see what the answer is in both. I mean, there's a guy I can't remember his name. He lives in Norway. I get it confused because he's got the same name but a different spelling of some guy in Uganda. John, do they say their names differently for the record? Because I'm not a good pronunciationer. So yeah, it's Jakob Ingebrigtsen and Jacob Kiplimo. Okay. Ingebrigtsen does both pretty well, and I don't think the USA schedule is out for 2023. But last year the double was very doable. The, the 1500 was on Thursday and Saturday, and the 5000 was on a straight final on Sunday. So. Actually, if it yeah, if it works out that way, the fifteen hundred is Thursday and Saturday, and then the five k is on Sunday. Sure, and it both. 
because I think he wants to do the 1500 and he'll know his fate by the end of Saturday. And if he needs to do the 5k, he can. I think he, I think he did enter both last year actually, and then just ended up scratching the 5k after he won the 1500. But it's, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to run both events at Worlds. Uh, I, yeah, look, I, I made my case for the 1500. Well then, what do you think? I think the 15. I was about to say how many guys who are sort of stuck between 15 and 5 are actually better at the 5. I don't feel like sometimes you have the speed for the 15. Usually, like, that kick, that change of pace suits you better, but Jakob might be the exception to the rule. But you can always move up. It's harder to move down, I feel like. Do the 15. There's also a quote I spoke to Sinclair Johnson after this race. She ran the 3K. She basically ended up soloing an 837. She took off the last kilometer and crushed everyone. She had run, wanted to run in Birmingham, and I was talking to her. She had a bit of a snake-bitten season because she was supposed to run Milrose, then she had a stomach virus, couldn't run that race. She was supposed to run in Birmingham. Flight gets canceled, couldn't run there. So she goes to BU instead. I was impressed because 837, Sinclair Johnson, I thought of her as an 800, 1500 type. This was her first 3K in four years. To run 837, mostly on her own, closing well. I thought that was, shows that she's still got some strength in her. You know, we've been talking, oh, how can she adapt? She's a year removed from that strength work with Bowman. Seemed pretty strong to me on Sunday. And then I talked to her. I loved her attitude because we were saying, you know, I was there with David Melly. And we were asking her, you know, are you going to be running in Europe? Or what are your racing plans? And she was just like very adamant. She needs to be out testing herself against the best in the world. And she said there's a huge gap between U.S. distance running and where Faith Kipigon and Gudolf Sagai and all those other world-class runners are. And I think just trying to get more experience racing them and being put in really uncomfortable situations and trying to figure out how to work through that was the main goal of indoors. She didn't get to do that indoors, but she said she's going to be going out on the circuit, running some of these diamond leagues. Last year, there was a six-second gap between third and fourth in the women's 1500, and then fourth, fifth, sixth. They were all pretty close. Johnson was sixth. I like this. Now, just going out and racing them, that's not going to turn you from a 358 runner until a 354 runner, but... I love the attitude. I love that she wants to be great. I love that she wants to take on the world's best. I, I found that really encouraging, and I think she's in a good spot right now. She may be proving me wrong that she's not going to have a great 2023 because she seems very strong. That was a very encouraging result, and I loved how she wanted to go to Birmingham, but I think her flight got canceled. So can we go back to the week before last, John, your trip to Australia? There was a message board thread saying, why were the U.S. juniors wearing red tape over their logos? And it's created a fascinating message board thread. People are saying that the Nike singlet that the U.S. team always wears is actually in violation of the world athletics rules. And therefore, it had to be covered up. And that the reason why it's not covered up in every other world athletics race is nobody even actually enforces the rules. I haven't confirmed this with USATF, but that's pretty hilarious if true. And then Becky Gillespie, Peter, a pole power. She's got the final post in there. And she said that there's actually a rule at USA's that you can wear as many logos as you want, any size you want. There was some sort of ruling on that, but 
that doesn't apply to the Olympic trials. But oh, other meets, the logo rules aren't enforced on purpose at the U.S. meet, so you don't see it enforced. But that Nike scene, apparently the swoosh is too big and should be covered up. Yeah, I was confused by this because I didn't notice any of the senior athletes doing it, but the junior athletes, they all like really wanted to rep Nike. Like they were like upset that they had to do it. A couple Leo Young and uh Marco Langon, who were the two guys I started interviewing, they were like, Oh, can we take these off before we start the race? You know, we you know, wanted to be able to rep rep Nike. So they thought it was cool to have the Nike swoosh on the single. It, it seems like a major oversight that, you know, one of the most prominent track and field nations, they wouldn't have their uniform and compliance. And I did it not apply to the senior athletes as well. Like, cause I didn't notice them doing it. I don't know. It, it seems confusing. USA has been wearing this kit since the Tokyo Olympics. I would have thought it would have been a big deal or a bigger deal by this point. Maybe the people in charge of enforcing it aren't really that interesting. I, I, I'm sorry. Aren't that interested in enforcing it? I found it odd. John, this is just bureaucracy at its finest. I'm sure there's a different guy who measures it for one race versus the others, or someone kind of looks at it. It's a swoosh. It doesn't look that big. But the rules shouldn't even be in place. Well, maybe for a world championship, they can have regulations. But for the Olympic trials, the athletes should just wear whatever the hell they want. Come on. like. Well, and apparently there were other Nike-sponsored countries had to do that as well, according to one of the athletes I spoke to from the junior team. So, But if you're going to have this rule, enforce it. I want World Athletics to enforce it. I want to see how quickly, if a day one at the Worlds in Hungary, the thing is covered up, how quickly Nike flies new uniforms out to USA. How quickly can they turn it around? You know, some of their shit's right made in China or wherever. Could they, could, would they have a... I guess you could put the logo on last. They could put on a smaller logo real quick. Come on, World Athletics. If you have this rule, enforce it universally. Otherwise, get rid of the stupid rule. I don't like the rule because it makes it impossible to put Let's Run.com across your chest. Like, I guess the let's, the famed Let's Run.com single would be banned, right? From Or does a club have a different rule? There's different logos for clubs. Uh, I think it's still... I don't think you can do that. It's certain meets. I mean, it depends, but... By the way, this singlet... Hold on one second. I think Dan Machowski... How do you say it, John? Machowski? Machowski. Pretty sure he sent the singlet back. Open this up. Oh, wow. I got a a note for... Look look at this. Can you see this? Dan has sent the singlet back. I've got got the bib. Are these signed photos of him? That's... uh... I've got the bib. Oh, wow. The bib. This is great. This needs to go up on the wall and I'm going to write the PB. This is the Let's Run Singlet PB for the half marathon. You're just joining the show. Dan Mikowski offered to wear the singlet. He wore it. Mikowski. Well, he's got a picture. It says two LRC of him running the steeple. I think in college. Picture of him and, and the hot wife and the kids. Wow. Air Force sticker. This is great stuff. Thank you, Dan. But if you're a pro and you want to set a PR in the Let's Run singlet, email me, robert at letsrun.com, robert at letsrun.com. Actually, don't email me. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, unlike Google. You can pick up the phone and reach us, and you don't even have to pay to reach us. 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786, hit extension 3, and you will instantly be 
forwarded to my cell phone. We'd love to hear a voicemail too from you. If we play your voicemail, we will send you a free t-shirt. Those are available at shop.letsrun.com. All right, last thing before we get to Jacob Thompson, the U.S. Half Marathon champion. We should probably talk about the races at the U.S. Half Marathon Championships in Fort Worth on Sunday. Men's side, it came down to a three-way, four-way kick, actually. Thompson, Leonard Correa, who's won this race a couple times in the past. Futsum Zayas Lassi, the U.S. Marathon champ. And Beat Simbasa. And Thompson was the best. 62.38, so not the fastest winning time. That's why it was, you know, so tightly bunched to the finish. But he gets the victory. And then on the women's side, Alephine Tulliamuk and Lauren Paquette, NAZ Elite teammates, they... Took it out. They dropped everyone. Pocket was pushing the pace earlier, and then Tulia Muck takes over. She wins it 69-37, 69-51 for Pocket. Big gap back to Nell Rojas in third in 71-08. And then eighth place, Molly Seidel, won 73-08. And that was interesting because she's running the Nagoya Women's Marathon two weeks from the day of the race. I mean, this is Tuesday, so we're a little under two weeks away. I guess I had a couple takeaways from this race. One, it was it's interesting to see, you know, someone like Jacob Thompson, 28 years old, he's been around the block a few times. This is his first US title. That's a big deal for him. Beat some pretty established guys, so congrats to Jacob. But then also, I was very optimistic about Tulia Muck winning this race, because 69-37, that's a personal best, and this was a hilly course, so She's probably in a bit better shape than that. She's running Boston in April. You know, to see her set a half marathon PB in the buildup, I feel like that's a pretty good good sign for what she can do in April. And then Molly Seidel, I don't know. I guess the tendency is to say, oh, seventy three oh eight. She's running a marathon two weeks from now. Even if she keeps that pace for the whole race, and even if you count for it being a slower course with the hills. That's only going to put you 225, 226. It's not crazy fast. But I'm actually not really freaking out about this Molly Seidel effort because I just think it's unrealistic for people. We She had a very rough year last year with her mental health. Um, and eating disorder and you know all this sort of stuff. I just feel like anyone expecting to see Molly Seidel of 2021 or 2020, in 2023, that's a little early. I think her goal is, hey, get to the Olympic trials in 2024, get to the Olympics in 2024, be my best self. This is a year where she's sort of building back into fitness and rebuilding herself. So I don't have the highest expectations for her, and that, as a result, I'm not really panicking by 7308 uh, in this race because that's just not the timeline she's on. That's the way I view this result anyway. What say you guys? I pretty much agree with you, John. Great for Tolmuk. I'm a little bit more negative on Seidel. And I'm, I don't, I hate to say it. Well, I shouldn't say it. Are we going down the Jordan to save road with her? I, I'm encouraged whenever she's racing. The fact that she's healthy enough to racing is great. But I don't care what type of training. I mean, your marathon pace is normally... 20 seconds a mile more slower than your half marathon pace. So this is not a good result for her, but she'll probably prove me wrong. I mean, I remember I, I'm the one that famously refused to wake up in Tokyo at 6 a.m. to watch her run in the race because I thought we had a shot at a medal. And then 
John was banging on my hotel door telling me to wake up in, in Tokyo to Molly Seidel was going to meddle. <laughs> I thought he was pulling a prank on me. But for the men, we're going to have Thompson on in a minute, but this guy was 17th in USA's in the track last year. He's just much better suited for the roads. I mean, he ran 62-25 last year, 211 in the marathon in Sacramento. So I think this is very encouraging for him. As to, he's clearly not going to make an Olympic team in the track, but the marathon, he, he definitely could. Well, they sort of turned for home. I was watching the race. I think there was four of them like on the final straight. He just blasted these guys. I was like, whoa. And I'm like, who is this, essentially? So glad we're having him on. I mean, like the crazy thing is, Robert, he is better at the marathon. He's second to U.S. marathon championships. But he's run under 28 for 10K. But I guess that doesn't mean anything now. You got to be under 27 if you want to make worlds. The 10 is this weekend. If anyone who lets run is going to be at the 10, email me. I'll pay you to take some interviews for us. You're going to be at the 10. Email me, weejo at letsrun.com. As for Seidel, I encourage her for, for getting out there and racing. I mean, she's going to fly to Nagoya and, and get smoked. But it's difficult. Like, I won't even go run a road race now because I'm embarrassed by the time and I'm almost 50 years old. Like, what's the point? I want a time to my name. You got to get out there and compete if, if you still want to do it. So I applaud her for, for making those steps. Somehow, I think when I woke up this morning, I swear I was thinking... I'm like, how did she medal at the Olympics? It shows how damn good she is at her, when she's at her best. And we want more Americans getting back there. Well, I'll also say this. She posted on Instagram. This was, she said, this is the first time I'd done a race you know, two weeks out from the marathon instead of just, you know, being my hard, last hard workout. Who knows how, I, I doubt she was going like 100% all the way to the well, knowing she has a marathon in two weeks. So who knows how seriously she took this thing. I'm reserving judgment a little bit until Nagoya, but yeah, I don't. Again, I said it. I don't think Molly Seidel of February 2023 is what we have seen from her in 2020 and 2021. But I also don't think it's as good as we will see for the Molly Seidel of 2024. So that's kind of how I see it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. We've got the podcast with Jacob Thompson coming right after. Sorry, the interview with Jacob Thompson will be uh, in a few seconds, but make sure that you are joining the Let's Run.com Supporters Club. If you haven't already to get access to our bonus podcast, let's run.com slash subscribe. This week, we've got the 10. We have Euro indoors this weekend as well. So we might give a little preview, talk about that. And then next week, we will have NCAA indoors. We'll have boots on the ground coverage from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Robert and I will be there. So stay tuned for all of that. And now here he is, Jacob Thompson, your U.S. Half Marathon champ. We are pleased now to be joined by Jacob Thompson. He is a 2018 grad of the University of Kentucky. The college had a best finish of six in the NCAA 10K, which he accomplished twice. After college, spent a couple years with the BAA high performance team in Boston. Now he's out in Flagstaff running for Under Armour's Dark Sky Distance team. And most recently, on Sunday, he ran 62.38 at the USATF Half Marathon Championships in Fort Worth, Texas to claim the win and the national title. And we are now pleased to be joined with him by him on the show. Jacob, welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. John, John, hold on a second. You got to play up this win. Okay. This is the Where Your Dreams Become Reality segment. And... 
Jacob, he was second at the USATF Marathon Championship, so he's finding some success in the roads. That was last December at CIM. But this race this weekend, there's five guys kind of battling it out the last mile, then there's four maybe the last quarter, and you're right at the convention center there in Fort Worth. Fort Worth, my old hometown. Congrats to Fort Worth for getting a national championships. Anyway, they turn from home, there's four guys together, and Jacob just blasted. It's him. I mean, these guys, some of these guys are way more credentialed. Leonard Career, Footsum, Zena Selassie, and B.S. Mbasa. And Jacob, you just blasted him that, that last, I don't know, what is it, 100 meters there? Uh, yeah, probably like 25 or 30 seconds, maybe 100, 150, 200 meters uh, once you came around that last bend. Oh, wow, it's further than I thought. And, and he had the time, John, with probably 15 meters to go to start doing a huge fist pump. And I was like, it doesn't get better than that. If you win a national championship, you want to be able to celebrate it. So I love the win and the celebration. Kind of talk us through maybe the last bit of that race there. Yeah, uh, so like the last, there was a really big hill uh, between mile nine and 10. And when we got to that hill, like it was still, uh, still quite, I mean, there's probably at least 10 or, or 12 guys in, in the group. Um, and then once we hit the 10 mile mark, I kind of got down to, you know, it's us four plus Ryan Schrader and then Scott Fobble. Um, there was, you know, six of us up until basically we hit the final mile. Uh, and I, I had been at the front of that group, like for a long time at the beginning of that race. So like at that point I was just, you know, going to tuck in right behind, uh, you know, I've, I'd run behind Bia and, and Lenny and put them, uh, you know, put them in, and Bia even in, in training like so many times. Uh, so it just kind of felt natural to be right there. And I, I feel like, you know, going back and looking at like a lot of these USATF road races, which I've done, you know, more and more of as I've come off the track and, and more focused on the roads. It's like, you know, I've been second, I've been third. I'm usually in the top 10 at, at races like this. Uh, but it's always like, oh, I miss one move and that's, you know, that, that breakaway, that top four or five kind of getaway. Uh, so I was just determined to like, cover every single move I could. And then, yeah, even with like a K to go, I was like, oh, there's only three minutes left in the thing. Like I, I covered all the moves. Like there, there's probably only one move left and it's going to be the move, uh, going around that, that final turn. So yeah, once I was there, I was, you know, pretty confident that once we turned that last bend, it was, uh, you know, kind of over at that point, but even with like 600 meters to go, I was like just waiting for, you know, somebody like Bia or Lenny who just do what they do every single time on the roads. Cause they usually, you know, have some big move from, from fairly far out to, to start breaking everybody down. Yeah, you're 28 years old. You've been running these races for a while. Uh, you were third in this race last year. This is your first national title. What is the feeling like you cross the finish line? You're a U.S. champion for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's great. Uh, you know, I was third at the half last year and, and second at the marathon. Like I've, I've gotten close uh, a couple times, but then you know, like I show up at, at the 10 mile, and I was I think I was like 14th at the 10 mile. I got my butt kicked, and I was in I was in marathon training. I was uh, probably about, about six or eight weeks before. Uh, CIM, but yeah, I mean, these races can be, can be really good and really competitive and to finally, you know, cover all those moves. And, and I've never beat Bia before. I've never beat Lenny before. I've only beat Flotsam once or twice in my life and I've been racing him since high school. Uh, so those are, that's where I want to be in races. So it's exciting to finally kind of see it all come to, to fruition. Does it make you think you've like reached a new level now that you've won this race or is it just like, Oh, I'm maybe only a little better than I was last year. Like how does this do you view this as like a big breakthrough performance for yourself or is it just more validation of what you've been doing? 
Uh, I, I think it's both. Like, I think now it kind of gives me the confidence. So, like, you know, I've always thought in the back of my head, like, hey, I, I can race with these guys. And I've, I've closed the gap over the, you know, started racing on the roads in 2020, 2021. Uh, I've kind of closed the gap a little bit more every every season. Um, so to finally kind of have that big breakthrough, yeah, that gives me the, the confidence. That, like, yeah, I need to, I actually can cover these moves. I can run with these guys, um, you know. And now there's kind of really bad expectation on myself. Like I've always thought it was possible, but obviously to have it actually all click and, and come to actually happen is, is a big deal. Yeah, sort of. Where'd you go to high school, actually? Uh, I went to Holy Cross High School in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay, I thought you were Kentucky because you got ThompsonTraining.run. Run, is that right? What's the URL? Yeah, ThompsonTraining.run. Uh, yeah, we coach. I mean, we have a big middle school program, uh, a ton of high schoolers, and even, you know, we. I, coach a lot of adult marathoners uh, as well. So we kind of cover cover everything with that. And you was based out of Kentucky, that you had local guys in Kentucky. But, you know, now you're in Flagstaff and, and really killing it. But, you know, if you rewind your sort of career, you get six at NCAs. That's very good. But, you know, you're not winning things. It's such a fine line how we judge these things, right? Because, like, the guys who win usually consistently win. And the guys who are six usually aren't winning. Um, but you don't go to NC State, you don't go to Kentucky unless you're a really good runner in high school, right? So you, you progress there, you have pretty good success in college. You get out of college, you join the BAA in 2018, you're there for three years, you know, COVID hits, all this stuff. But you weren't having tremendous success. And then, well, you can talk me through the rest of this. Then I think you sort of bet on yourself and decided, I'm going to take a chance, move out to Flagstaff, kind of talk us through maybe 2020 till today. Yeah, I mean, even even going back like a little bit farther, like you're talking about, you know, in high school and, and being at Kentucky, like I was always kind of like knocking on the door of kind of like similar to where I was before this race and, and these road races where, you know, I was fifth at Foot Locker. I was at the Adidas Stream Mile. Like I went to the Brooks PR meet. Like I was, you know, top five at like all these big races, but I never got the the win. And then, you know, going to college, you know, both times I was sixth at NCAAs, like I took the bell took the bell from Cesarek and I took the bell from Ben Flanagan, uh, both, you know, both of those years. And, you know, I finished six and like a sprint finish, but I, uh, you know, didn't get the win. So it kind of gets put on the back burner. So I've always kind of had the belief that, yeah, like I should be and competing to win these races, but I've, I've never actually gotten to kind of break the tape at a, at a really big one. So, uh, that's something that I've been working towards for a really long time, but then, yeah, going to, to Boston, like, we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started recording, like, you know, coming out of college, I was a 5k, 10k guy, 13, 28 and, and sub 28, uh, in the 10k. So like the, the track is, is really good if you want to be world-class. And I kind of knew I was always going to the marathon. So once things started to get really fast, I was like, well, I'm going to go ahead and make that transition after the, the 2021 Olympic trials. And, uh, yeah, I ran Chicago's 12th at Chicago, in my debut. And then CIM was my second marathon, which was, you know, for over a four minute PR and, second at a uh you know a u.s national championship so i think things are really trending like the right way for the marathon and now obviously everything's just kind of road mapping out to where i want to be in february going into the trials marathon trials we talked about this a little bit before the show but for you know for the listeners 2020 at the end of that year you said that you could have stayed with the baa if you wanted to you had the option to stick with them but instead you decided to you know, pack up your stuff, drive out to Flagstaff without a sponsor. So can you tell me 
you know, what went into that decision? Why did you do it? Um, and how it went for you? When COVID hit, I had started uh, online coaching with, you know, basically just one athlete from my hometown that, that DM me uh, and just kind of asking for some help because, you know, he was a high school sophomore. It was pretty good. Um, but, you know, his school season, everything was canceled. So it started with me giving him some workouts. And, you know, I had very few, like five or six athletes uh, kind of join up during during COVID. And they were all pretty good high school runners. And, I mean, one's at NC State, one's at Michigan, and one's at Kentucky now. So, like, they're, they were all turned out to be pretty good. Um, and then I basically at the end of 2020, my contract with the BA was up. And uh, I had, like, a renewal. But the online coaching was going really well. Um, and like I wasn't making that much for my, my Adidas contract. So I was able to, to say like, Hey, I have, I have a finite number of years to do this. Like what is going to like set me up best for, for what I want to do. Um, and all my PRs post college had come uh, after altitude camps or from being in an altitude tent. So I knew I responded well to altitude. So I, uh, yeah, packed everything up and, and drove to Flagstaff and uh, was lucky enough, even though I was unsponsored, uh, that first year, like I got some help from, from track Smith and then, you know, had a really good year, uh, ran sub 28, went to the Olympic trials, swelled at Chicago. And then after that, uh, I got picked up, um, by Under Armour and, and Dark Sky. Okay. First of all, the high school coaching, how did all these, I mean, you get kids going to Michigan and whatnot. Did the word just get out amongst these kids? how do you get such good kids? How are you marketing, finding these kids? Uh, yeah, I just got lucky. I feel like the, my first two kids were two really good sophomores and uh, yeah, they were the first two. And then, you know, one of them ran 408. Now he's a, at Michigan, a freshman at Michigan. And uh, the other one was a Kentucky state champion and uh, he's now at NC state. Um, and then I brought on uh, my friend Thomas cave who took, like does a lot of the work with, uh, with me. And we started a running camp and, you know, we have 250, 300 campers and we started putting on it. We put on a meet, like we do a lot of different things. Uh, that's something that's like, really important to me outside of running. Um, but yeah, it's really grown faster. I guess we're coming up on like the three year mark right now, uh, of all that starting and it's grown a lot faster and been a lot more fun than, uh, I could have imagined. Yeah. Well, congrats on that. I mean, it sounds like there's two sides of your, of your running life and they're both going well, but 2021, you know, you run sub 28. Are you done with the track? I mean, the 10 K is kind of crazy now. Like to, <laughs> You want to go to Worlds, you pretty much need to run sub-27. I think that's what it's going to take this year as a man. I don't think there's going to be any other spots available. Right, John? Maybe one or two? Maybe. But you you got to be 27 low. It's very it's tough these days. Yeah, I think uh, I might run an, a track race or two, but I, I won't be at, at the U.S. Championships uh, on the track this year. Like I think I'm going to probably do – I don't know what, what marathon yet, but I'm probably going to do a late spring or early summer uh marathon and that like the roads the roads are definitely 100 percent my my focus now because yeah I'm, I'm focused on february of 2024 yeah and less than less than a year out so, like that's kind of my whole uh everything is, is building backwards from that right now we, we can talk about the trials in a second but before that i love it you're at the usatf 15k championships which are this weekend right yeah they're on on saturday so back to back it's old school. It's like the guys used to do, I feel like, in the 80s and stuff, you know? It's less but, than a week. The U.S. half is on Sunday, and this one's on Saturday, so. I mean, they didn't around. announce, they didn't announce Fort Worth. Like, how, how, 
when did you know the Fort Worth race was even going to be the USATF champs? It wasn't announced that far I was, advance, right? uh, yeah, I was home for Christmas. Uh, after CIM, I you know, went on vacation and, and then I, yeah, I went home for a couple of weeks through the rest of, of December before I went back to Flagstaff. And yeah, I was, I was back at home when I texted, I saw it on Twitter. Uh, I saw somebody tweet that Fort Worth was going to be the, the marathon champs when it was in February, the Texas half. And I was like, I guess we better, uh, start, start getting to work. And then, uh, yeah, I love I love the 15K in Jacksonville. That was actually my first road race I did uh, in 2020. And it's the only road race that you know didn't miss a year with with COVID. It's kind of like the last race in 2020 and the first race back in 2021. So that's one I can always try to make sure I get on the calendar. Yeah, and who who's in the field this week? Like, you think you can take this one down too? Uh, I've I've heard Hillary Bohr is is really fit. If he's you know in any kind of shape like he was back at the the 10 mile. Um, I'm sure he'll be kind of a force to be reckoned with. Lenny Career's coming back. Um, and then I, I forget the, the guy's name, but uh, the guy who just got his citizenship that ran really well at, at Houston is, is also in the field. Oh, to show me Mekinen, maybe? Yeah. Like his name was on the list. And, you know, Reed Buchanan just ran World Car Off. He's, he's in there. Uh, so it should be a pretty, pretty solid field. I'd say it's probably a fairly equal field to uh, what the half was on, on Sunday. Well, good, good luck on that one. But looking out, I mean, I, I feel like this is called weird dreams to come reality. Every kid dreams of the Olympics. Well, I think they do if they follow track and field. Um, and that, that's the big one, Olympic trials. What's the date? It's less than a year from now, which is crazy, right, John? Yeah, it's the, the first week of February, right? February wow. 3rd, 2024, my 33rd birthday. So I'm well aware of the day. Well, it'll be a big party. Um, but yeah, wake you said everything, you know, counting back from that. What are the plans for the rest of the year? I assume we're going to run one more marathon at least, if not two. Um, come talk us through that. Yeah, uh, right now we're basically trying to decide what we want to do or like what marathon it's going to be. Um, I think why something in kind of like June or July makes a lot of sense because I don't want to – we looked at doing something you know, early fall, but uh, – Having only have two marathons in my belt, I don't really love the idea of going, you know, marathon build up. Say you run a marathon in September, October, and then, you know, three weeks later you're starting the, the trials build. Uh, I don't really love that that timeline for myself uh, since I'm not like super experienced marathoner by any means. So I think doing something a little bit earlier that kind of allows me to, like take a little bit of a break and then focus on. I kind of like to like race my way into a, a marathon build up with like, you know, races like this, like the 15k or. When I was building up for CIM, I did the the 10K champs, the 10 mile champs, and then raced a half. And then it's like I kind of like to start with the shorter, faster stuff and, and build into the marathon. So I think hopefully run a, a June or July marathon. Um, yeah, take a little break and then do some road races, kind of like late summer, early fall before before that build up starts. I wanted to backtrack just real quick because we kind of glossed over. You moved to Flagstaff. You're being supported by Tracksmith a little bit, 2021. Then 2022, you joined the Under Armour Dark Sky team. And that group right now is having a lot of success. You know, Sharon Lucati won New York City Marathon in November. Neil Gawley is in great shape right now. He's been running really well. And now you're the U.S. half champ. Like, how does that contract come about? What was, what you know, what do you think... It was about you or your results that convinced them to take a chance and to sign you. Yeah, so I, I moved to Flagstaff uh, April first of of twenty twenty one, and like that first weekend, uh, Isaac Updike invited me out to a, a long run, and I bumped into half 
even half of the long run. And, you know, he thought I was there for like an altitude camp. He's like, oh, if you're around the next couple of weeks, like, we'll let you know when we have track access, you know, you can come to your workout at the same time as us, whatever. He's very uh, accommodating. And I was like, oh, actually, I packed everything in my CRV and, and drove out here. So, like, I'm, I'm going to live here. Uh, and so, yeah, I started linking up with, with BS and Bossa for workouts and, yeah, kind of got dragged around by him. And I think that's, you know, a big reason that I broke 28 minutes was getting to, to work out with an athlete like that. Uh, and then, yeah, like I had a pretty solid year, broke 28, was 12th at Chicago. And then basically right after Chicago is when I started talking to the half about, you know, joining the, joining the team. And then yeah, became official, uh, January last year. So I guess we're about 14 months into, into that contract. And yeah, kind of the whole goal of the team is like, we want to be competitive, uh, you know, basically from the 1500 through the marathon, you know, all nationalities, like we have uh europeans australians uh you know sharon's uh kenyans like we have a lot of different countries a lot of different like specialties but we want to kind of cover everything as, as best we can and uh i mean like what well, you just you said neil and, and sharon you know wayne you just made world cross uh wayne coletti while herrera ran 1310 and uh 352 so like we kind of have all the bases covered uh katie snowden's running really well right now too so like it's a exciting team to, to be a part of. And yeah, I think it kind of really shows like you just get a group of talented people together in the same room, even if they're from different countries and different events, like it can be a, a special group. You guys are having amazing success. I mean, well, someone will probably take this the wrong way, but I, a couple of years ago, I'm like dark sky. Like, what is that group even doing? And now you guys are like killing it. I mean, like in everything. So. Yeah, I think it took a, it took a while to get the right, like, you know, people and the right support and get like everything like in place. But, you know, everything, there's a lot of, of moving parts, obviously with people kind of racing all over the, not even over, all over the country, but people are racing all over the world. It seems like, you know, every, every weekend we have, we had two people at, at world cross, uh, you know, Katie and Neil are racing Europeans this, this weekend. Um, I'm here at road champs. The rest of the crew just finished their indoor season at, at last chance meet uh, BU this past weekend. So yeah, it's, it kind of took a while to feel like to get, that ball rolling for for the team but uh yes yeah when we're all when we are all in one place it's it's a really good group to to work with and what about the footwear did it take a little while for like you know every it's an arms race right now with these super shoes and you know nike's the first one to get started then some of the other brands are playing catch up obviously now what you guys are racing in is good enough to be competitive with people but did that take a while for the shoes to come together or when did you first like be able to race in Under Armour shoe. The one really good thing about uh, like the Under Armour and like the shoe team is like they come to Flagstaff almost every quarter. Like they're out there every three or four months, and once they leave, like we have a prototype a couple weeks later that like is all our feedback from the previous one. Like they they move extremely fast, and uh, Will Lear is kind of like our liaison or like our coordinator between like us and the the shoe engineers. Um, so like. You know, if I try a new shoe, I'd text Will and he relays that like right away. Um, you know, he was texting me asking me what I thought of the shoe that I wore um, this weekend, like the day of, of the race. Um, and they're like, yeah, we're going to get another pair of those out like right away. So that's Under Armour is moving like really fast. Um, the spikes have come a really long way. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think our shoes are just as competitive as anybody's and their turnaround rate is, is so quick. Um, like when I was, you know, with the BA, like we didn't have any access like that to Adidas. Obviously, like we just kind of got what we got. 
Um, I never talked to like a shoe engineer or any, anybody like that. So, um, you know, it's really nice to, to have access to those people uh, at Under Armour. Don't change shoes this week. What you use the one? Yeah, I only brought one. I brought one pair of trainers and one pair of flats with me. So don't don't let them test anything this week. You're on a hot streak. It's like it's the same pair I uh, I raced CIM in as well. So we'll see if they're good for one more. I mean, you're doing the back to back USA TF Road Championships, and I, I saw in your interview with Runner Space after your big win last weekend, you mentioned like there's talk of the USA Road Circuit going away. I've just heard the same rumor, but like, have you heard anything more concrete? What have you heard? Yeah, what I've heard is, uh, I guess, also a, a rumor. I guess it's, it's flowing around Flagstaff, or at least I hear it on, on runs. That yeah, this is going to be the the last year of of the circuit. Uh, I've heard from from multiple people, so I'm assuming it's probably at least partially true. Um, I think it'd be a shame if it, it did go away because like these races provide a lot of opportunities to, to us runners i mean i don't know if, if the circuit itself disappears if like the the races will still want to put on elite races which if they do you know maybe it's not the worst thing in the world but uh yeah i mean i would i think there's a lot of things wrong with with the circuit but i i don't want it to, to disappear that's for sure yeah i think the circuit itself the championship it's never i, I don't know it's never been perfectly figured out but i know this is 25 years ago when I ran. One, it's a national championship. Athletes like that, fans like that. I think the race is like being associated with the national championship. I mean, I guess you could call it the let's run.com national championship circuit or something, but it's not the same thing. I don't think. Well, hell, maybe we'll just brand it ourselves. It's not going to happen probably, right? Nobody would care. But I, I don't. Why wouldn't USATF keep it going? It, it, yeah, I don't I, think it cost them anything. Yeah, at sure. least I I don't know exactly what goes into like the you know the USATF side of it, but I mean from what I understand, you know the races are the ones putting up <clears throat> putting up the money and like you know the support to to the athletes. So like hopefully, uh, yeah, they can figure something out. Yeah, I think that John was saying the Fort Worth Visitor Center Convention Bureau helped sponsor the race in Cowtown this weekend. Yeah, it was so, uh, yeah, Fort, Fort Worth Sports Commission. Uh, that's who, like the elite athlete coordinator and everybody uh, who they were, were all with. Yeah, I mean, it would just be a shame if like this is a way to get all the guys who are running or training for marathon, 10K, you all come together and you run the U.S. Half Marathon Championships. You're always like, you're like, okay, this is the half marathon we're going to focus on this winter or spring. And there are plenty of half marathons where a bunch of people could, you guys could run, but having the U.S. championship label, that just it tells everyone, hey, this is the one we're all going to do. If that goes away, then, you know, is everyone going to come together to run the same race? It's kind of hard to imagine they would. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've circled those races on my calendar. Like, those are, you know, races I want to go to because, yeah, they're national championships. I've, you know, now I have contract bonuses for, you know, national championships and stuff. Like, so there's definitely people don't just show up to them to run them like, you know, you would a, a regular 10 mile or a regular half marathon. Like it is a, a championship race and yeah, running fast is, is cool, but you know, winning, winning's cooler. All right. Well, since people are, we're talking about Fort Worth and I live there, I have to plug it. I grew up in Dallas. I'm going to piss off everyone I grew up with here. When you grow up in Dallas, you never think you're going to live in Fort Worth. That's just how it is. My dad's whole family was from Fort Worth. I moved away. Move back to Texas, move to Fort Worth. It's the place to live, people. 
it's better than Dallas. There, there it is. I said it. You can still root for the Dallas Cowboys. Great town. If you're going to the DFW area, stay in, stay in Fort Worth. I hope you, Jacob, did you do anything kind of sort of like quintessential Texan while you're there or, or Fort Worth prides itself as on where the West begins. Did you do anything like that or are you just racing? Yeah, we raced through the stockyards, which was kind of cool. Um, it was all like kind of brick, which my Achilles didn't love, but uh, it was cool cool to run through there. And then I do like road races that have uh, like something kind of tied to the town. So like, you know, our wards was where cowboy hats. Like that was that was pretty cool. Uh, and we feel like a, a real Texan, especially on staying there with, with Footsum. Footsum got a good laugh out of uh, having his first cowboy hat. So that was funny. John, anything else? No, I, I think uh, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the talk and, you know, I, I always like the cowboy hats at the finish too. It reminds me of like the 2012 Olympic trials in Houston or the Houston marathon every year. They always give the winner a cowboy hat. I'm like, yeah, it's a nice little thing, local twist. So, uh, but yeah, no, Jacob, really impressive stuff over the weekend. Congratulations on the first national title. And yeah, less than a year to go until the Olympic trials is certainly establishing yourself as a contender now with this and the uh, run at the U.S. half marathon champs lost. Sorry, U.S. marathon champs. Lost full. So thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And yeah, I'm ready for uh, the next year. And Jacksonville, I wonder what the local, what you get if you win Jacksonville. Like, what's the local thing there? I don't know. I haven't been in the top three in Jacksonville, so I'm not sure. Hopefully, hopefully we'll find out uh, come Saturday. And John's a proper journalist. He says, we, let's run. We're not allowed to root. But John, I'm allowed to root for Jacob. He packed up his car on his own and drove to Flagstaff. I did that. I'm allowed to root for anyone who does that. Everyone else these days has got sponsorships lined up beforehand, contracts beforehand, and his first national championship was in Fort Worth. I'm rooting for you, Jacob, no matter what John says. All right. I appreciate it. I can use all the, all the help I can get out there. All right. Thank you.